Hey everyone, welcome back to another episode of the Commercial Property Investor Podcast, where it's my job to introduce you to people from the world of commercial property. We're talking with investors and thought leaders about their experiences of the commercial property world and sharing our own lessons from the last 20 years to give you practical know-how so that you can follow in their footsteps. If you've ever thought commercial could be your next step, but it just seems too confusing and opaque, then you've come to the right place. There are so many exciting opportunities in this dynamic sector, and I'm looking forward to pulling back the curtain and sharing them with you. What about you? Do you really sell enough? Are you unapologetically selling? Or perhaps you sell too much and you might actually repel people. Hello, hello. Welcome back to the Commercial Property Investor Podcast and I'm your host, Jerry Alexander. Okay, right, so I've actually been out on the road for quite a number of days. Not all at once, but over the last few weeks, I've been out and seen quite a lot of different people. And I've learned a few things. So I've been speaking at some events, I've been recording some great podcasts, there's some really good podcasts coming out, and I've viewed quite a number of buildings with CPI clients. So this is where commercial property investor clients have asked me to come in and have a look at a property. And it might be one they've bought or it might be one they're looking at buying. And it's maybe to assess how could we develop it, how's building standards going to work with this or building control. And, you know, what what, what really should I be looking for? Forget all sorts of questions, right? And all of those questions have been sort of sitting in my mind. I'm thinking, hmm, do you know what? That's such a really good question. I'm going to think about that one and maybe use that on the podcast. And what I want to share with you is some insights, okay? So the things I want to cover are selling, writing a book, raising finance, big projects and project management, social media insights. And finally, I want to touch a little bit on build costs. So it's a bit of a random list, but this is just me giving your brain dump with some of the stuff I've picked up over the last um, couple of weeks of travelling. So on one of those trips, I went to speak at an event with my good friend Linda Martin. And you've heard Linda on the podcast before. If you listen to a few of our episodes, you will have heard of her um, recent commercial purchase and obviously her um, gatehouse that she bought a while ago too. And it meant that we had a bit of time to catch up, talk about things, share some ideas. And the topic of writing a book raised its head again. And every now and then, someone mentions it. But not quite enough for me to do anything about it. Get your head focused on to writing the book, was the message from Linda. Linda, if you're listening to this, thanks for the nudge. And after airing my general misgivings of spending so much time on such a project and sharing a few other well-thought-out excuses, (laughs) I did come round to seeing the logic for spending time on it. And I guess... That kind of nudged me a little bit further towards doing it at some point, right? Not picked a day yet. But the other thing that she said to me was um, I should be more unapologetic about selling. And she was referring to the CPI consultancy business where if I'm doing a talk or something, I don't always really talk about how we support investors and, and how we can help them through our consultancy business. And she's right. But I also spent a bit of time reflecting on that in the car in relation to our other business ventures, including letting, of course, of commercial space, our main stuff. And yes, maybe there's something to be said for being more unapologetic in selling there too. But it leads me to a question. What about you? Do you really sell enough? As in, do you, are you unapologetically selling? 
Or perhaps you sell too much and you might actually repel people. It's a fine balance, isn't it? And difficult to see from inside your own head. So what I took away from that, apart from the fact that I need to adjust my sales technique, was that actually it's quite difficult to see that ourselves. And perhaps we should seek more feedback on this from those that will give us the truth. It's easy to spot on others, isn't it? You're maybe at a networking event or um, a award ceremony or something, and someone's maybe being just that little bit too pushy. Easy to spot, isn't it? And sometimes it can repel people. Or perhaps somebody's being a little too scared to ask for the sale or to ask for contact or to ask for that next meeting. And sometimes it's quite easy to see, but what about ourselves? Not quite so easy. So maybe we just need to suck it up and ask. Ask for somebody's opinion. Or in the case of Linda, just be told. (laughs) Thanks, Linda. Okay, so that's the first thing. Second one was raising finance. Now, for those of you that have listened to one or two of our episodes recently, an episode came out with Freddie Ford of Patch. Great interview, great business. Down in um, Twickenham's where we recorded that, but they've got a few locations and, and certainly quite a few more in the pipeline. Now, I really love the story of Patch. I think it's really inspiring. I think it's something in there that a lot of us could take um, some ideas from. Sorry, Freddie. But just in terms of the scope of what can be done with the high street. But I also thought the information he shared about raising finance towards the second half of that interview was absolutely golden. Now, he was talking about two or three things that I took for my own self, as well as the thinking, you know, this is something I really need to share. We need to share with other people. The first one was know exactly what you're about and what you're offering investors. Be very clear. No wishy-washy here. So in other words, don't go in, or this is me talking to myself, don't go in with many different exits and different ideas of how somebody could invest in a project. Be much more specific. This is what it is. This is what you're going to get. And it, and he said, after speaking to many investors, what he discovered was most of them want to be told. Not told they're investing, but told what the outcomes are going to be. And they make he makes it very clear. The second thing that I thought was really insightful was that to raise a significant amount of money, so more than I've raised for our private debt, he spoke to two to three hundred people. Now that was, wow, okay. And that was to find 35 investors. So a hit rate of just over 10%, maybe 15%. And I think that it's actually quite interesting because most private invest, sorry, most, yeah, private investors into property, when they're seeking private debt from others, they maybe speak to one or two, and then they might get a bit scared and stop, unless they hit some success. And then they maybe speak to a few more, and then by the time they've got to maybe six or seven, they've run out of their pool of people they think they can speak to. And Freddie pushed past that. Now, admittedly, he was in some good networks and had some people to talk to. But the key thing he did was made sure he asked who do you know? He always booked a meeting from that meeting. So if you have six or 10 people that are in your network that you think might be able to, as long as you ask that question, that 10 can move on to another 10. I just thought that was really insightful. So know exactly what you're looking for. Understand that it's not going to be one or two meetings. It's consistent, numerous numbers of meetings. 
and always ask for who do you know. Great interest, uh, great points about raising finance. The second thing about raising finance that I picked up when I was out on the road from another um, couple of different investors that I spoke to was that they actually don't use any bank debt. So they're buying commercial property. They're not using all their own money. They're using some of their own money, but they're going all out with private finance. I just thought it was quite interesting. And an observation for me would be that often talk about this is generally around flipping, particularly if you're in resi and you're coming and looking at commercial. In resi, the suggestion often is you find a house, you buy it with some private finance, you redevelop it, you put a tenant in, you get it revalued and you flip it on, either sell it or you flip it on to bank debt so that that private finance thing gets recycled, it gets paid back, and then you maybe go again for another one, or the, the, the person that's lent the money or the company that's lent the money goes off and does something else. But I do think we need to focus a bit more on long-term holding, because otherwise, both in terms of the property, but also the investment, in terms of the property, if we're flipping them on, we never really get to that passive situation, that foundation of income. And I think that we need to look at both private debt for longer-term investing, as well as obviously the properties themselves. And we as a company have had a mixture of short and much longer term debt in our business. This is private debt. So some's been in there for years. Some comes in for a short period of time, short being maybe 12 months, 18 months for a project. And the stuff that's been in there for years, it just earns an income every month, every quarter, every six months, whatever it is that the agreement they have with the different individuals. And I just think, I just want to put it out there that you don't need to do private finance for a short period of time. It could be for much longer. And actually, it's something we're going through refinance right now. It's made me think, look, I really need to explore the idea of shifting more of our bank debt onto private debt and remove some of that bank debt. And perhaps you could too. Just a thought. And as a side, as an aside, I do need to say, if you like commercial property, but you just can't be bothered with the hassle, <laughs> then ping me a message to see how we could potentially work together because we're always looking for private debt. Now, next, I was really lucky to interview a fairly well-known developer in property circles, definitely in, in um, resi circles and increasingly in commercial sectors, circles. And that was Mark Homer from Progressive Property. Now, some of you will know him for sure, and some of the projects he's been working on. And I was really fortunate to have a wide-ranging interview with Mark, and he shared a lot of insight into a specific project, which was developing 99 apartments in an old Marks and Spencer's building in Peterborough. And we went through loads of detail, which was fantastic, about raising finance, structuring the deal, how the underpinning from retail, and major build challenges which leads me on to the next insight I want to share with you because a lot of that stuff's going to come up in an interview soon, right? And on a podcast episode soon. But we spoke about the progress of projects that got himself and uh, Rob to a stage where they took on this big site because it wasn't just, oh, one day we moved from doing houses to developing 99 apartments in one go. There were other steps in between. And we had this discussion about main contractors, and, you know, when when do we grow up and take on a main contractor? And actually, on this project, they did take on a main contractor. And it didn't necessarily work out the way that it was intended. And it just seems that often it comes back full circle to where 
you, I, become the main contractor. I just thought it was quite an interesting insight. Because for me, I'd always been thinking, well, at some point, I'm going to bring on a main contractor. Because we always do our own developments. We have brought in project managers. But in terms of actually getting to bigger and bigger stuff, I'm like, hmm, yeah, at some point, we need to bring in a build, uh, main contractor. But there was an interesting insight there. And, and that was that the health and safety piece, which is often the bit where there's there's a lot of risk or a lot of risk mitigation required and systems and processes. And actually, you can, of course, go out there and get someone to deal with the RAMs, the risk assessments and the method statements, and regular inspections done by outsiders. So they don't have to be part of your main project team. They don't have to be employees. These experts who can reduce that risk hugely by developing and helping and supporting you through a management process can actually bring some of that main contracting risk to a manageable state, a manageable point. And I'm not saying that everybody um, needs to go down the same route. For you, maybe using a main contractor has been something you've always done. But for us, it's something we haven't brought in project managers. I've um, We've managed lots of subcontractors. But the other pieces of the contract that need to be dealt with absolutely need support from the QS, from the health and safety people. But my insight was, sorry to go back over it, my insight was maybe you can still be the main contractor for all the benefits that brings as long as you get that team around you. And that's really what came out of that interview, amongst many other things. And just between you and me, we also recorded a second episode <laughs> about the economy. Now, those of you that know Mark knows he has um, a real good understanding of economics. And so we talk a bit about how things are going to play out in the economy due to the interest rate rises. And suffice to say that you don't want to miss either of those episodes. So make sure you're subscribed. So when those beauties drop onto your listening device, that's going to happen as soon as they're released. Now, I've got one more for you. Actually, two more for you. When I was down seeing Mark, I managed to um, spend a few moments um, listening to Rob, Rob Moore. And I sp have spent the last couple of years working with um, Rob on marketing. He does a marketing mastermind. It's been really, really useful. And on this particular time, I popped in and the thing that I picked up from this was just a little insight for those of you that do content on socials. For those of you who are raising your profile really on social channels or indeed on more traditional channels such as PR, his comment was, always pick the title first, then build the content around that. Everybody generally does it the other way around. So have a think about it. If you're doing social media posts, do you generally, I do this, write an article or something, think, right, there's a great blog post, there's a great piece. And then you're like, right, what shall I title it? <laughs> and he says, no, no, no. You really need to pick the title first and then build your content around that. And you might go out and find the idea of the title from doing some research on Google or asking for top searches and all that sort of stuff. But the point is, your reason for writing great content is for people to read it. But if it doesn't have a great title and it doesn't go in front of anybody, it could be the best content ever. But if it's not visible, then it doesn't matter. So he's suggesting 
do it the other way around. And actually, we recently had a PR session for our CPI network with um, Jessica Morgan. So again, she was on the podcast recently over the summer. Jessica's from Current Site Communications and gave us um, a couple of podcast episodes actually about PR, which is really insightful. And during that um, private session she did with our network, she also brought up the idea about writing the article. And actually the headline is the thing that you should start with because this is where you're trying to get interest from editors, right? And then write your article around that. Now, don't just pick some random articles, nothing to do with your topic, of course, or your subject, but but I do think that's really helpful. It's helped me anyway. Pick the title, pick the headline, then write the article around it rather than writing all that lovely stuff and then not having an idea of how to actually title it. And another thought from the last few weeks of interactions is around build costs. Now, I have a habit of forgetting that some of the knowledge and experiences I've picked up over the years is actually in some ways fairly specialist, right? Okay, and I need to stop proceeding with the view that most of it is common knowledge. And for example, build and fit out costs. If people are coming from resi experience, it is actually really quite different over here. And I do sometimes just need to check myself when I'm out on site with people thinking, actually, just because I've got a rough idea in my head of the build costs for different states of buildings doesn't mean that that, that knowledge is necessarily in, in other people's heads. So I'm actually going to do a different podcast about this next week or over the next couple of weeks anyway, about build cost, about spec, about sales price, because they're all interlinked, right? But the point I want to cover here is we all need to get a good handle on these numbers and how different spends can affect the quality of the final product and the balance on what you can charge and the best possible margin. So it's a three-way thing. The first thing is the build cost, right? How much are we going to spend on it? The second part of that triangle is the spec. What what level of spec are we going to create? We're going to turn this into a five-star location or two-star location. And then the third part of that triangle is the achievable sales price in that market. Is it a five-star market? Can you achieve that price? Because build costs, yes, yeah, sure. If you're building in the centre of London versus um, some other locations that are maybe not quite so difficult to service then there might be a difference in the build cost, but actually the price difference in the sales can be really significant. So you might build the best quality product ever in a lesser market and never achieve the sales price you need to for that build cost. So we have to have an understanding of all three of these because if we don't, the stool, the three-legged stool is going to fall over because if you don't know the build cost really, then the spec and the achievable the achievable sales price you might have worked out are not going to stand up. So I just think it's really important that you understand build costs. So I'm going to come back to that at another time, right? I can't give you exactly what those build costs are because it depends on the project. Every single one of them is different. You need to get somebody in your team that can really help with that. But I will give you some ideas about that um, in this next episode whenever I get around to it. So I hope you found those slightly random thoughts or insights useful. It has reminded me how important it is to make sure you get in the swim and you stay in the swim, right? 
Every day needs to be a school day, or at least a good chunk of them, so that we're constantly learning. So thank you to everybody that I met when I was out doing these different tours and different buildings and podcasts. It's been a really great few weeks. I really appreciate your time. You know who you all are. Thank you so much, and I'll speak to you all again very soon. (music) 